0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's open our Bibles, if you would please, to Exodus chapter 36, And our study of the tabernacle in the wilderness continues with the second part of the message concerning the veil that separated the two compartments in the tabernacle. I suppose that looking over this crowd, everyone here has uh, been here for at least some of our studies, and it probably doesn't make much difference to you if I just start out with a cold beginning. And by cold, I mean uh, I don't really need to reintroduce this study every time because you've been here. You know much of the background material that's got us where we are. So I, I may not need to warm you up for the message. I mentioned last week that most Christians know little to nothing about the worship of the tabernacle. And if you are a Bible reader, you know this is one of the uh, sections of scripture that people just kind of hurry over to get to the exciting, more familiar parts and there aren 't too many Bible readers that stop to consider why this part is in the scriptures and because of this there if there is someone listening that doesn 't know, it kind of makes me uneasy to start without explaining what we are doing in this part of the Bible. Maybe people listening to our podcast or uh, to the videos may not know this, and so rather than start completely cold, I just want to mention that the Bible is a journey that takes us through the story of how God saves fallen man. Only three chapters into the Bible, God's first man, Adam, fell, he sinned, he became a lawbreaker, he became a transgressor against God. And three chapters into the Bible, all humanity that follows is under the judgment of God under his just condemnation, and subject to the righteous punishment of an eternal hell. And then three chapters in, God gave information about how the estrangement between him and man could be taken care of, could be repaired, and how his righteous judgment against us could be completely satisfied. And then in the third chapter of Genesis, God promised there would be a Savior who would come and He would defeat sin, death, and hell. None of us can repair the breach between us and God. We can never satisfy God. And so God had a plan in place whereby he would redeem the fallen sinner. Then everything that happens afterwards in the Bible is the complete unfolding of these various aspects of God's plan. And in the revelation of this plan, there are bits and pieces that are scattered throughout the Bible. And what we must do is to assemble all of that we have to work to assemble all of it so that we understand this story completely for example how does the story of Noah and the flood figure into God's plan and how do Abraham Isaac and Jacob become a part of God's plan how does the story of Moses and the exodus from Egypt figure into God's plan and then we come to this part how does the tabernacle become a part of God's plan And and just briefly, in a very short warm-up, the tabernacle is the gathering of many different aspects of God's plan of redemption into one place. This is the most complete revelation of Jesus Christ, the person of redemption, the author and finish of our faith in the Old Testament. It reveals Christ in types and figures, that is, in symbolisms and in pictures that are further elucidated in the doctrines of the New Testament. And then without rehearsing all the parts that we've already been through, we come to this veil in the tabernacle, and it represents a very significant part of God's redemptive plan. Now, some of the things that we've talked about, some of these pieces of the plan are a little bit harder to connect and figure out what it's all about, but this one is very, very clearly stated in the New Testament. The author of Hebrews was masterfully acquainted with the Old Testament types and figures. He was an expert in all things tabernacle and temple. And he wrote in chapter 10 of Hebrews, in verses 19 and 20, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So the Hebrews author tells us that the veil in the tabernacle represents the flesh of Jesus Christ. In other words, we're dealing with a type of his incarnation. And the symbolism of entering in through the veil is that for us to be saved, Christ must become flesh. He must become like man to give himself as a sacrifice for our sins. The veil was a separating curtain. It hung in the tabernacle between two compartments. The first part is the holy place, and there are the the other furnishings that symbolize different aspects of Christ's work of redemption. And then behind the veil, there's a second compartment, and this is a secret room, you might say, a room that couldn't be entered except on one day of the year, and that was on the day of atonement, the day that satisfaction is made. Behind the veil, there's the mercy seat. That's where God's presence was seen in a brilliant light that was called the Shekinah, Blood was brought in and sprinkled on that mercy seat, and that was the blood of atonement. That was reconciliation of the people to God. And so when Hebrews says in this verse that we can go into the holiest of all, its symbolism here means this room where there is the presence of God. And to get into that room, we must pass through the veil, or in a type and a figure, we must go through the human sacrifice That is, through Christ, the Son of God, who came in the flesh to die for us. And very simply, that's how the symbolisms of the tabernacle work. They represent facts about Christ and what he would do when he came from heaven, when he was born in a manger, lived a perfect life, demonstrated perfect obedience to his Father, then was crucified, died, was buried, and then rose from the dead. So Moses was told to construct a tabernacle that would represent this and many other important aspects of Christ's redeeming work. And he was told that this tent, the tabernacle, that's what it means. Tabernacle means a tent. That this tent was made after a pattern of things that are in heaven. So I think it's good for us to remember why we're in this study. What, what is this all about? And very very succinctly, our our objective here is to learn everything that we can about Christ. And the tabernacle is one of the Bible's best teaching tools. Well, we're going to continue our study of the veil and get more specific about it uh, this afternoon. This veil separates the two compartments. And I want to show you that picture again that we used the last time. And you can look at that as we uh, consider and read this command to make this veil. Exodus 36, verse number 35. And he made a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen with cherubims made he it of cunning work. And he made thereunto four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold and he cast for them four sockets of silver. In the last message, we began by considering the coloration of the veil This veil is a fine linen curtain made of the colors of blue and purple and scarlet. And I mentioned that our picture really doesn't do that justice because it was expertly woven by the finest craftsmen. The colors are the typical ones that were used throughout the tabernacle, and each of those colors has special meaning, and you can research other sermons to find out the meaning of those colors. But the last time we did spend a good amount of space to discuss just one color, and that's the color blue. Blue represents heaven, and heaven is the place that the Son of God came from. And blue was a popular color for Israelites because God said every person is commanded to wear blue. Sewn into their garments was a blue band that ran around the hem. And that van was always there to remind them that they were servants of the God of heaven. And we we looked at this to remark that the blue in the veil represents the duty of man. It was the the duty, and by extension of the type, it is our duty to obey and to serve the God of heaven. That blue is a symbol of obedience uh, to the commandments, and they show that we are a people that are separated to the service of the one true living God. Israel was a different people, they served a different God than those nations that were around them. Their worship was different, their clothing was different, their morality was different. And they showed these distinctions by such things as a blue border in their clothing, and that said they were sanctified and holy to God. God made these laws for them, the laws were strict, obedience was required, the best Israelite did not and could not keep them perfectly because they're sinners just like us. And so they had to turn to God and ask for forgiveness. They had to make blood sacrifices to show that life must be given to to uh, cover up their imperfections. Hebrews says the life of Christ is represented in the veil. And our duty to God is pictured in the veil. And likewise, um, this perfect... The perfect duty that's required is shown in the necessity of Christ's incarnation and the shedding of his blood to satisfy God for our sins. Now, I'd like for us to, to go on from there to see the corollary in the colors. As as men, Israel wore blue. That's because of the duty of obedience. But also in the blue, there is the reason for obedience. Jesus was a man, but he was a unique man. He was not a man, whose origins were in this earth. He was blue, that is, he was God from heaven. So in this veil that represents flesh, the blue also shows us a reminder of the deity of Christ. Now, with this blue, there's another reminder of the holiness and the perfections of Christ. Woven into the veil are cherubim, sewn into it are cherubim, and as the approach, priest approached the veil, staring at him are these heavenly creatures that protect the holiness of God. Now, a few months ago, we, we studied the first covering that went over the framework of the golden boards. And that, uh, this, this first covering made up the ceiling of the tent, as well as the. Uh, you could see that part. And the cherubim were sewn, or cherubim were sewn into that, that, that top, to that ceiling. And that was a reminder that the priest, as he went in, he was to be holy as God is holy. But he recognized that he wasn't holy enough for God. And so when he went in, he dared not enter without blood. And I hope you remember from that study of cherubim, uh, we saw that they're in God's throne room. They continually repeat that God is holy, holy, holy. And each of them has four faces that shows the character of God the character of Christ who is God staring at the priest is this holy creature these holy creatures angelic beings whose job it was to per to uh, reflect the the marvelous character of Christ uh, each of these cherubim had four faces and one is the face of a man that showed that Christ was a man that he came in human flesh he experienced our trials he our temptations our sorrows and yet Christ remained perfect in holiness. Each cherub also had the face of a lion. That showed the kingship of Christ, that he's the king of heaven and earth. Each cherub had the face of an ox. And the ox is a beast of burden. An ox is used to work for man, to take the burden off of him. And that's what Christ did. He was brought low and he became the servant of men. Then each cherub had a fourth face. That was the face of an eagle eagle's known for its swiftness, it's known for the sharpness of its vision. From lofty perches, uh, an eagle looks down to see the smallest of prey, and then he swoops down to grab the prey. And that eagle eye represents Christ's omniscience, that he knows all, he sees all, he knows everything about us, and there, there are no secrets that are kept from him. And so the priest, as he enters into the tabernacle to perform his duties, From above in the ceiling, there are cherubim that are looking down on him, in front of him at eye level. In the veil, there there are those cherubim that are watching. And the implication is that God sees him. And though he labors in the tabernacle imperfectly, God himself will take care of his reconciliation. God's presence is seen there, known there, in the cherubim that are sown in. Now, stepping a little bit further into the symbolism... We want to consider next the separation of the veil. Now, we've learned that the veil is the way into the Holy of Holies, but as it hangs in the tabernacle, it's also a barrier to going in. It's the division between the two compartments. The ordinary priest, that is Aaron's family, uh, those, those men could go into the first compartment to do daily duties they could go in to change the oil in the lampstand they could trim the wicks they could go in to take fresh bread and replace the old they could refresh the incense that was to be burned but what they couldn't do is they couldn't go beyond the veil the holy of holies is off limits to them and the only one who could go behind the veil was the high priest he did that only one day of the year on the Day of Atonement, he was permitted to go in at least twice, once to go in to make a sacrifice and atonement for his own sins, and then a second time for the sins of the people. Uh, reading the text where it explains that, it might be that he went in more than, more than twice on that day, but there was only one day of the year that he could do this. And the admission of the high priest only typifies that only Christ, who is our great high priest, can do the work of redemption and that he took his own blood, and he offered it on the mercy seat. Now, I'd like to refresh you for just a minute uh, about some things that we discussed when we were studying the high priest. Uh, This prohibition of going behind the veil and only at the appointed time was something very seriously considered. Uh, This is not a law they dared to break. The activity of the priest always being busy when he went to the tabernacle, figures into the sacredness of the holiest of all. Now, it was commanded that the priest must be busy. He couldn't stop. So you won't find any chairs in the tabernacle. None were needed. The priest couldn't sit down. He had to keep moving. That was to show that he was busy. And God said, if uh, if the priest stops, he'll be struck dead. And what, what God instructed them to do was sew golden bells into the hem of his garment and those bells had to keep ringing. They're, they're always ringing as he moves about the tabernacle and that shows that he's busy. And as I said, God said if they stop ringing, then the priest would be struck dead. And what are they to do with the dead priest? Well, how are they going to get him out? What, what are they going to do with him? Well, it seems the only time the high priest wore this robe that had the bells on it. it, was on the Day of Atonement. And that's when he would go in to do all the interior work, all the things that he did on the Day of Atonement. Then he would change his clothes. He would change out of those clothes that had the, the beautiful colors and you put on a simple white type of clothing. And then he would go behind the veil to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. But what if he stopped moving before then? What if those bells stop ringing? What if he died there? Well, during the intertestamental period, there was a legend that arose that said, well, what they did was to tie a rope around the ankle of the priest, one that was long enough that it would trail all the way to the outside. So if he died, they would just pull him out with that rope. And when we discussed that before, I told you that that legend is not likely true because God never commanded that that would be done. That would be in addition to the high priest's clothing that God wouldn't permit. But the fact that there was such a legend shows how serious they were about obeying this command. They were to stay out. So this veil becomes a very ominous barrier. Only inches away through this curtain is the mysterious glory of God. Only about a maybe a third of a step away from them, there is God's presence. But they dared not go in because God is too holy. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus peeled back the thin layer of flesh, you might say, and underneath there was the brilliance of God's glory. What does the veil say about separation? Well, first, it shows us that man is shut out of heaven. Now, let's go back to these cherubim for just a minute. These are mighty angels that keep defilement away from God. Sin keeps us out of God's presence. And when Adam sinned, God put him out of the garden. And you know the story how he placed cherubim with a flaming sword that guard the entrance. Uh, The cherub turned every way to keep Adam from the tree of life. And we think about that and we think, well, it was a very, very bad thing for Adam to be thrown out. Adam would lose the beauty of the garden, all the wonderful things that God put there. And surely that was a a terrible thing to happen. Sin is a terrible thing, and the whole human race was affected by it. The whole human race is condemned by it. But throwing Adam out of the garden was an act of mercy. Now let's turn to Genesis chapter 3 and let's look at this. Um, Earlier I said that three chapters into the Bible, the story of redemption begins to unfold. Genesis chapter 3 is a critical chapter for understanding why we are where we are why we're sinners, why we so desperately need a savior. God threw Adam out of the garden, but it wasn't because God was mad. God had already taken care of Adam's sin. God restored him to fellowship. He had already killed animals to clothe Adam and Eve, but God couldn't leave him in the garden. Now, Adam had a different nature. Before, he wasn't positively inclined to evil. His posterity would be. Adam, though, was fallen, and his sinful nature was sure to get him into trouble again. Now look at Genesis 3, verse number 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Why did God throw Adam out? Well, he drove him out, not because of anger, but because if he ate of the tree, because he had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, I would have to say from, from that point, the problem was he mostly knew evil. But we also remember, and, and we see it here, that there is another tree there, and old Satan is as adept to get Adam, to tempt Adam, to get him to eat of this other tree as he was the first tree. That other tree, we see, is the tree of life. And if Adam had eaten of this tree, he would have lived forever. Now, I don't have time for us to preach about the tree of life, but this tree is seen again in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus said those who overcome, that is those who believe in him, will be given the right to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. It's very interesting because there uh, it says paradise in Revelation chapter 2. Eden is often referred to as paradise, but the paradise in Revelation is the paradise of heaven. And the right to eat of the tree is restored when men become perfect in heaven. And then in Revelation 22, the tree is mentioned again, and there it says that this tree was for the healing of the nations. Now, the Bible doesn't describe how. Some take it only metaphorically anyway. But the tree, it, 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 there's an indication that somehow it's, it's helpful for sustaining eternal life. And that should help us to understand why God... Was merciful in throwing Adam out. Adam would be tempted, and no doubt at some point he would probably eat of that tree of life, and then in his sinful state, he would have, been, he would have eaten and been confirmed in his sin, and he would eat and live forever in a sinful state. Well, he couldn't go to heaven in that state because God can never fellowship with sinful men. And this is one of the things that the veil of the tabernacle says with, when, it, when it has these cherubim that are sewn in. It says you've got to stay out. You can't enter God's presence with sin. Now, inevitably, some will speculate well, what would happen if God didn't throw Adam out of the garden? And what if Adam did eat of that tree of life? How, what kind of, or what is the bearing that that would have on redemptive history? The only thing I can tell you was it didn't happen. There's not much use speculating because God didn't plan for that. God had one plan. Adam would eat of the tree. He would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then Adam would fall. Adam would be thrown out. Then Adam would receive God by faith and he would be saved. God's grace would be magnified. God's son would be glorified in becoming a veil. That is becoming flesh. And that's it. That's the story. There's no guesswork otherwise. Cherubim and a flaming sword block the way from every angle. And that's just as it was for the priest who was standing in front of the curtain. There are cherubim that guard the way to going in. There's no going over. There's no going under. There's no going around. You can only get to God by doing what Christ did in becoming flesh. Now Satan still tempts. He denies that the sacrifice of the flesh of the Son of God is the exclusive way to heaven. He lies, and his preachers lie. They say that good deeds and philanthropy and keeping religious rituals, those are also ways to God. I've been to funerals where I've heard preachers say something like this. If anyone is in heaven, this guy surely will be. And they imply that it's being a good guy... That's what it takes to go to heaven. A few years ago, there was a member of our church that died. and I was saddened when I read the obituary in the paper that his family wrote. In, In the paper, the family made no mention of his faith in Christ. They talked about what a good guy he was. And he basically was in heaven because he was a good old boy. And that's the devil's religion. It's always been the same. Always the same everywhere you go. No matter what you name it. All of the world's religions and false Christianity are based on goodness. I was reading a story about Islam and how they fear Allah. And this story claimed that's what makes them good people. It's the fear that they have. They believe that what they do for Allah, that's the way that they'll get to their idea of paradise. But the veil won't let you come that way. The veil blocks that way and says, everything that you do is not good enough. The priest could keep every ritual to his best perfection. But haven't we already seen and already said that there's an atonement that's been made, a sacrifice is made. And Israel knew why there's a sacrifice. Because they sinned. Now, if Allah allows his followers into paradise by good things they do, well, that would just tell us that Allah is as corrupt as them. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Galatians 3.22, But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should be afterwards revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Of course, we recognize there is no Allah. We don't worship the same God only by a different name. There's no paradise for the non-existent Allah or his followers or any religion that depends On unrighteous humans becoming righteous by their own power. So the law, the priest's practice, would never get him behind that veil. His imperfections caused him to plead for the mercy of God. And then to believe and be justified only by faith. And every person that tries to climb up some other way. Is confronted with a flaming sword and a cherubim that protects the holiness of God. Now, I want to look at this last observation before we close this afternoon. Uh, next time, two weeks from now, we're going to finish the study of the veil. But lastly, I, I'd like us to look at this part, that the standard for humanity is Christ. The standard for humanity is Christ. Christ came from heaven to restore what we lost in Adam. We lost the paradise of Eden because of Adam. But in God's mercy and grace... He restores more in Christ than we lost in Adam. And though Adam came, or through Adam came sin and death, Adam is not our standard. We're, we're all cursed with the same curse that was put on Adam. We all have the same nature as Adam, but that certainly by no means says that Adam is our standard. You know, if you ask little children what they want to be when they grow up, who do they want to be like? Uh, I think answers might be a little bit shaky today because kids' minds are so filled with Avengers and superheroes and movie characters. That's what they want to be. But it used to be, if you asked a child, what do you want to be when you grow up? The little boys, you ask them, they say, well, I want to be like dad. Uh, I want to work in the same place as dad. I want to do the same things as dad. Little girls want to be like mom. You know, that's a little bit shaky too because... Now little girls don't want to have families and keep house. Now they want to be in the corporate world. Now they want to be the boss and they want to be president. I was listening to MacArthur several weeks ago and he was talking about women preachers and women speaking in church. And he said, this thing about women wanting to be pastors, it's really not about being equal with men. It's not about being on equal footing. It's about power. What women want is to become more powerful. And he was asked in this interview, uh, what would you say, he was asked, what would you say about Beth Moore? I don't know how many of you are familiar with Beth Moore, know who she is, but she is a Southern Baptist preacher. Now, you wouldn't have said that before because she used to only teach women, but things have changed. And now she wants authority to teach more than women And uh, so MacArthur was asked about this. She wants the authority to preach over men. So MacArthur was asked, what would you say to Beth Moore? And he answered, go home. (laughs) He said, just go home. And he was skewered for that. Now MacArthur's a smart man. I've heard him preach many times. He preached that the woman's place is in the home and that things went terribly wrong when women got out of the home. First Timothy teaches that women are not to be preachers and pastors. It teaches that the role of the woman is a creational principle. You don't change creational principles. And I don't know how I got into all that. My point here is that uh, children want to be like mom and dad. But mom and dad are not the standard for our lives. But I would say this, that if mom and dad are good godly believers in Jesus Christ, then mom and dad can say the same as Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Because ultimately the one followed then is Christ. Now, here, here's the problem, and it just keeps ringing true in the pictures that we're describing this afternoon. Colossians 2.9 says, for in him, that is in Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead, what? Bodily. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Do you get this? That is in His flesh. Jesus Christ was all the fullness of the Godhead. He never gave up being the Almighty God when He came to this earth. And the standard by which we must live is Jesus Christ. And He is God. And folks, that is a high standard. That's the highest standard anyone can live by. The highest standard that could ever be attained. Now you think for a minute about Jesus' interview with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a man that lived by a high standard. He was a doctor of the law. He was a a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest Jewish council. He was on the court. And like the rest of the Pharisees, especially those in that position, they were thought to be the holiest, the most righteous men of all. But in this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, he told him that wasn't enough. His righteousness and holiness wasn't enough, that before he could get to God, there were two things that he needed. He needed the work of God in him, and he needed the work of God for him. He needed to be born again. His natural birth in Adam, that wasn't enough. Before a person can see the kingdom of God, Jesus said, you must be born again. And we talked about that in form class a few weeks ago. We mentioned some of that this morning. To see, uh, in John chapter 3, to see means to have faith. And being born again comes before faith. That is, God has to work in you before you can see. That is, have faith in him. But that wasn't all that, that Nicodemus needed. That was the work of God in him, being regenerated, being born again. But there's also something else that... He said to Nicodemus, "That goes on down, and we're down around the seventeenth verse in that in that neighborhood. Thirteenth uh, uh, verse, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. You know those verses. And Jesus said, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Lifted up. That's the cross. That Christ must go to the cross, and when He's lifted to die, those that believe in Him will have everlasting life.' So this is the work of God for Him." That is, Christ must die for him. Well, what does that mean? Well, we're talking about atonement here. And there are false prophets like Charles Finney who taught that uh, Christ's atonement was a moral example. That what Christ did, he came to show us the way to live. But if that's all that Christ did, he wouldn't have done anything for us but to drive more nails into the coffin of hopelessness. We can't be saved by Christ's example. Well, how then are we saved? Hebrews says we're saved by the blood of Jesus. That it's his vicarious sacrifice, a a sacrifice that's made in the place of sinners that we're saved. So, taking Finney's position that we can reform ourselves, that we can remodel ourselves and fashion ourselves after the life of Christ, that's not enough. And that's because you'll never reach that standard. And, And then we need to understand this, that as long as Jesus is alive... As long as he was alive as a man, I mean, if he didn't die, then the veil still hangs and there is no access. Oh, well, Jesus had to, be, had to die. The veil had to be torn. That flesh intact is a solid wall that no one can penetrate. It has to be torn for access to be granted. Now, we're going to stop at this point. Uh, I, I didn't have time to get into the next one, maybe a little bit short here, but... Uh, I'll leave it to you to figure out what the next point in this sermon should be. What is the next point in the symbolism of the veil that's revealed in the New Testament text? And the first person that can tell me what that is, you get the privilege of preaching it. So think about that. But you see this from the beginning and, and all the way through. The journey in Scripture has signs that point to Christ. The route takes one direction, and that is into the throne room of God in heaven. The signs that we find in Scripture, they always point to Christ. And it just so happens that when we arrive at the tabernacle, it's like coming to a superhighway of information where all the signs show the attractions of Christ. Uh, We head down this avenue, and, and this street takes us to the Doctrine of Justification. And we go down this street over here, and here is the doctrine of sanctification. And then we take another street, and down that street, there's the doctrine of election. Then over here, there's another street. That's the doctrine of definite atonement. And the tabernacle happens to be the hub where all these doctrines meet in one place. And the doctrines that go out are spokes that go out from Christ. And that, folks, is a marvelous map to study. That journey always leads us back to one place, the mercy and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, the willingness to come to this earth, to become flesh, to become like man, to bear all the sins that we have committed against a holy and righteous God. That you sent Jesus to take the punishment that was due us. As we said this morning, the just dying for the unjust. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his flesh. That veil that being torn permits access to the presence of God. And when we recognize what that veil is about, then we understand there's nothing that we could do. There's no goodness in us. There's, we're bound by the law to stay out. And it's what God does, what you do, and what Jesus Christ did that enables us to come into God's presence. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your people tonight and hearing the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275. Or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronit Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.